All right. Thank you so much. Good morning again. Glad you guys are with us again. Um, all right. You're going to have to ask yourself, he said to me with a pointed edge in his voice, is this the hill you're willing to die on? Some of you have heard me describe this moment before, a moment where I was being clearly challenged to choose a side, to take a stand, to accept a firm consequence to a choice I was making. The choice in question, would I continue to challenge the system I was a part of? Would I challenge this network of churches I had called my spiritual home for decades and had always assumed I'd live out my faith and my vocation in as a pastor and a church starter? Specifically, would I challenge this network's ethic on LGBTQ inclusion and insist that the church I was going to start would be a church for folks of every gender and every orientation to be included as full participants and leaders? Or would I relent? Would I repent? Would I submit to this man's authority and the leadership structures he represented? To submit, to relent, to agree to this organization's stance of exclusion, to deny that queer and trans bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made and affirmed by God as they are, that meant I could stay. To challenge, to dissent, to choose, to affirm my LGBTQ brothers and sisters, this meant choosing separation, choosing rejection from this place of home, choosing to be cut off from my whole network and base of support, choosing something with consequences to this man as stark and irrevocable as choosing to die on a hill. So what logic could there possibly be to make that choice? How foolish would I have had to be to make it? Well, at this point, we're well into a teaching series on stories from the life of Jesus, a series we're calling The Stories That Sustain Us. In this series, we're looking at the four gospels to consider together what they tell us about this person of Jesus they are proclaiming and how these stories and this Jesus in the center of them might bring sustenance to us in this challenging season we're continuing to endure. Thus far, we've looked at stories from the Gospel of Luke, from Mark, from John. So today we're going to turn to our fourth gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, and see how Matthew shares with us a story about Jesus and his followers in the midst of a challenging set of circumstances, and we'll explore how they find themselves responding. My hope is that it will be instructive to us in some of the places where we feel like these circumstances are pretty challenging too. So let's start by just considering the setup for the story. Jesus has been attracting a lot of attention, thanks in no small part to a number of miracles he's been doing, healing people, casting out demons, and so on. But the experiences haven't all been positive. Jesus has not been warmly received when he went to his hometown in Nazareth. We saw Luke's version of that story a few weeks ago. Um, and then Jesus gets the news that his cousin John, the one who has been baptizing and working prophetically in line with what Jesus is doing, he has been executed, beheaded by the very political leader he felt called to challenge. Jesus withdraws to grieve, 
trying to pull himself away from these mounting crowds that follow him everywhere, but the crowds still find him. He's beginning to be pursued by them relentlessly. So when the crowds discover Jesus and they bring him their sick, he can't help himself. He looks on them with compassion and heals. And after a long day of healing and ministering, as the day is winding down, they're out in a, in a very rural area. There's no villages nearby. The people are hungry. Jesus does something equally amazing and feeds the multitudes with just a few bread and fish. And after all of that, Matthew then turns to the story we're going to look at today. So let's pick it up with Matthew 14, starting with verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and began, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Okay, thanks. So this is another famous story that many people who know very little about the Gospels or Jesus-centered faith have at least heard of, that Jesus, quote, walked on water, right? We even use that phrase sometimes to talk about somebody who's, you know, people really look up to. They think that person can do no wrong, like a Messiah. It's joked that person walks on water, right? But beyond this amazing idea that Jesus could do such a surprising thing, what is this story trying to tell us about who Jesus was and how he related to his followers? We're going to delve into those questions by looking at the story briefly in three parts. First, where Jesus is and what he's doing when the story begins, and then what we see when Jesus approaches the boat, and then what happens between Jesus and Peter on the water. So let's first consider the story setup, what Jesus is up to at the beginning of our story. Okay, Jesus has been delaying his alone time for a while, and now he knows he needs it. Matthew says Jesus compelled his followers to go on without him. The body of water we're talking about here is the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's really more like a lake, what we would think of like as a lake in the middle of the region, okay? And they've gone to one side, and now they're trying to go back to the other side. And Jesus compels them to go without him. He's insistent, okay? Much as he loved them, he needs his alone time, even from his closest companions. And it wasn't just time alone, like for a nap 
or to, you know, watch some Netflix, play some video games like we might do with our alone time. Jesus is spending time in prayer. Clearly, it was a restorative, life-giving practice for him. And this brings me to the first thing I want to notice for us today. Before Jesus did the miraculous, he took the time he needed to connect with the divine. Before he did the miraculous, he took time to connect with the divine. The gospels are actually filled with stories that reflect this pattern. Jesus is present to the crowds, preaching with authority and performing miraculous signs and wonders. And then Jesus withdraws to pray. Before he selects the 12 followers, he's going to call to be his closest disciples. He spends time in deep prayer. And here, after he's experienced the grief of his hometown visit, followed by the loss of his cousin, after he's put himself out there doing miracle after miracle, he knows he cannot put off his alone time with the divine any longer. Now, while none of us are Jesus, I think there's something about his commitment to his personal devotional life that is meant to be instructive for us. His followers understood as much, which is why at one point they, you know, after he'd been busy in prayer, they approached him and asked him to teach them how to pray, which is the origin of what we call the Lord's Prayer. Throughout this pandemic year, all of us have heard probably a lot of talk and an encouragement uh, regarding self-care. And I don't know about you, but at some point I agree, I totally agree, self-care is vital, it's important. But there are also like limits to what it can accomplish for us, right? I found myself at times feeling a little frustrated, hearing someone tell me, you know, oh, this is so rough. Make sure you take a moment for self-care. And I feel like, you know, what I really need right now is to hang out with my friends without any masks on and then like share a meal. What I really need right now is for my kids to actually be in school. What I really need is to be at a coffee shop and just like people watch or to be singing in a worship service with all of you. But I can't do any of those things. So like what is one more nature walk or bubble bath really going to accomplish right now? <sighs> Maybe it's just me. But what we see here with Jesus, I think, is a call to something beyond like our top layer coping mechanisms or the self-soothing practices that our various mental health professionals might be recommending. Because Jesus is tapping into like a deeper spiritual connectedness, a deeper source of replenishment and strength. One that is present with us, even in the darkest places of our lives, when we've lost someone we love, when we feel depleted from the pressing concerns on every side. One specific part of Jesus's devotional life I've been reflecting on this week is his way of addressing God as if God were an intimate, loving parent. That was very new in Jesus's day for a religious leader to talk that way about God. He used the term Abba for the divine, a term that the New Testament writers left untranslated from the Aramaic, I think because they understood the uniqueness of it. It was a pet name that imagines God as a close father. It's a name of intimacy. We might say daddy or mama is great too. The gender isn't what really is important. Rather, it's that intimate immediacy Jesus is calling on when he prayed to Abba. 
He's not connecting with the divine as a transcendent force of love filling all things. Though, of course, I would argue God is that. But Jesus understands that the finite mind needs more finite conceptions of the divine. And so he connects in this personal way with the loving parent who cares for him, who's available to him, who sees him and is there for him when he's in need. I know that all of us are so over this COVID reality. We all just want it to be done so badly. I feel like in recent weeks, we've hit another collective wall, or maybe it's just me. I recently had the realization that it's been almost a year since I've worshiped alongside other people. I've heard them sing with me. And I, it's like the longer it goes, the more I desperately miss that way of connecting with God. I realize that this way of connecting with God has been a core part of my spiritual vitality for you know, more than 20 years, most of my journey of faith. It's been wor musical worship with people, voices singing together. It's just been a core way that I connect and I'm filled. And so without that, I feel depleted. And I recognize that even in my weariness, more than ever, I need to find fresh ways of being nourished by my divine caregiver or being cared for by a sacred heart that sees me and loves me deeply just as a parent or other guardian gives care to a young child. I need to acknowledge my need before God and allow this loving guardian to care for me in that place. We're getting ready to begin this week, the season of Lent, a time the church has often set aside for deeper spiritual reflection and connection with the life and person of Jesus in the roughly 40 days before Easter. Often Christians include in that season a practice of deprivation, a fast, perhaps from a certain food or certain practices like watching TV or being on Facebook. And the hope is that setting aside some of those comforts reminds us to lean on God in places of dependency. Well, this year, I think we've all been living in deprivation for a while. I'm not sure we need to take on a fast, although if you feel called to it, I'd say bless you. But I think we can acknowledge we're all fasting in a sense already from a lot. Perhaps in this season, this Lent, our invitation is to stop trying to numb or minimize the losses, but to acknowledge our places of depletion, to allow those to be as painful as they are and invitations in that sense of deprivation for renewed intimacy with God. So to help with that, this Lent, we're going to be inviting all of us into a series of spiritual, creative experiences, not necessarily kind of typical prayer practices you might be uh, used to, but something different, um, both in Sundays and outside of Sundays, all with the hopes that they might give us some fresh tools to connect more deeply with our source, with our divine caregiver, however we envision them, to receive the refueling we need as well as vision and empowerment that's going to be necessary for the next series of challenging things we're called to. So I hope you'll join us in that journey, both through the Sundays in Lent, as well as the other experiences we offer you through the week. So 
We see Jesus connecting with his divine parent alone while his followers are taking this boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. And as we see, they are having a very different experience. So let's go back to the story, review what Matthew told us. He described it, by this time, the boat battered by the waves was far from the land for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, Jesus came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So while Jesus has been having his lovely time with God, the disciples have been fighting to keep the boat afloat on a stormy sea. They're now pretty far out from shore and they're struggling to keep themselves from going under. And after hours of struggle that undoubtedly feels futile and overwhelming, in the wee hours of the morning, the disciples see Jesus appear to them walking on the water. And they're understandably afraid. They think they're being haunted by a ghost. But Jesus consoles them. Take heart, he says. Cheer up. It's okay. It's me. Now, our English translation masks something unique about what Jesus says next. But it's likely something that the early readers of the Gospels would have noticed, particularly those from a Jewish background who were familiar with the Hebrew Bible. When the disciples look to Jesus in fear, he tells them in Greek, Ego eimi. Ego eimi. Most translations say this in English as it is I, but the actual words are more stark. I am. I am. They're the same words the Jewish people believed God used to describe themselves to Moses. The words behind the Hebrew name Yahweh. I am in Greek, ego eimi. To respond in this way to those battered disciples in the boat in that moment, Jesus is affirming something particular about himself there and now. Just as the divine had been drawing close to him, giving him what he needed, Jesus was now embodying that same divine spirit for his followers. And that brings me to the second thing I want to notice from our story for us to consider today. God comes to us in the places where our sufficiency fails. God comes to us in the places where our sufficiency fails. Remember, most of the dis disciples were fishermen by trade. They know how to handle a boat. Being in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, that is their place of stability and knowledge. They have been doing it most of their lives. It's the place where generally they know how to perform well, the system works for them, they can use the skills they've cultivated since boyhood. But in this story, these fishermen who've likely spent many days and nights on this very body of water, this night, they are confronting their own limitations to care for themselves with those same skills. The storm is just too big. These fishermen are forced to recognize that their sense of control and capacity was simply an illusion. In the place where their capacity fails them, this is where they need to encounter Jesus, the embodiment of the living God pursuing them. And this is another challenging truth I think we're all invited to consider. What are the places where we are recognizing the limitations of our own capacities? 
What are the places where we are recognizing the limitations of the systems and structures that we may have thought were working for us, particularly those of us who are white, those of us who are able-bodied, educated, cisgender, straight, male, those of us with relative wealth, job security, all of those areas of privilege may have shielded us at times from a sense of our own vulnerability. But then bigger forces come our way, forces that challenge even those areas of security and control we seem to have cultivated. When those forces batter our little boats with crashing waves, one after another, we're forced to reckon with our own fragility, with the limitations of our systems and our own capacities. And we're invited to look for the divine coming in mysterious ways towards us where everything else is breaking down. Take heart, Jesus tells his followers, ego a me. Take heart, Jesus tells us, I am. The abolitionist and suffragette Sojourner Truth had a question that was printed on her headstone. It was a question that many who knew her and appreciated the work she'd committed herself to, the work of ending chattel slavery in the United States, as well as advocating for the right for women to vote. They saw this as core to who she was and what kept her in the fight for freedom and justice. It was a question she had first posed when she attended a lecture by abolitionist Frederick Douglass in Boston in 1847. In his speech, Frederick Douglass was particularly discouraged that day. That night to a packed crowd, he gave his most pessimistic speech as he passionately spoke out against the evils of slavery. He lamented his growing conviction that the white people of America would never bring an end to the institution. There was only one answer as Douglass saw it. And that was an armed revolt by the slaves themselves, which would likely result in a wholesale slaughter. As the crowd sat in stunned silence at this idea, a deep resonant voice rung out in the hall, the voice of a former slave herself, who had also joined the effort to organize and advocate for abolition. Frederick, is God dead? Sojourner Truth asked a question that caught the speaker off guard, but he was forced to take to heart. Is God dead? Is God dead? Was Sojourner Truth's central question, the question that would later be written on her headstone. When we feel we've reached the limits of our own capacity or the limits of the structures we're a part of, is that the end? Is that really what we're left with? Is that what we believe? Can we entrust ourselves to nothing else? Is God dead? Or are there places where we reach the limits of our own capacity and even our own imagination? The places we must encounter the divine who is still living and present with us. Because if God is not dead, if our loving parent is present, 
If the divine is walking on water to us and saying, take heart, I am, how can we cease to hope? Well, Jesus's word of encouragement lands in a particular way in the heart of Peter, who responds unlike any other. Not only does Peter take heart encountering Jesus, he boldly feels drawn to join him in this place of impossibility, walking on the water. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, some people see this request as like a skeptical challenge to Jesus, like Peter's daring Jesus to prove it's really him doing the impossible. But I think his request is more sincere than that and also more audacious. Author and teacher Rob Bell has pointed out that in considering what Peter's doing here, it's helpful to consider some context from the ancient world he inhabited. Peter's been called to be a disciple of Jesus, and that's not a casual relationship. In ancient Israel, in Jesus's time, to be invited by a rabbi, to be a disciple, was something like getting a scholarship to Harvard. It meant something significant. It didn't happen to many people. It meant that that rabbi saw something in you that was worth cultivating. And the rabbi was inviting you not to just to do some Torah lessons with him, but to travel with him, to live alongside him, to follow him in an intimate way. So you would not only learn his approach to studying the Torah, to your sacred text, but you would actually become like him, do what he does. This has now happened to Peter and his friends, this strange rabbi has seen something in them, something most of their peers and certainly other, other rabbis couldn't see. The very qualities that made them unique likely would have turned the other rabbis away. Those rabbis would no doubt have given their scholarships to better students who more fit the culture, but not Jesus of Nazareth. This weird rabbi called Peter and his fishermen friends forward, inviting them not to become biblical scholars, but to become fishers of people. And now this man, who's just recently been known as Simon the fisherman, is in the midst of a life reorientation. He is becoming Peter, the disciple of Jesus. He's leaving the safety of the nets and the boats to learn the way of this strange rabbi who's unlike any teacher any of them's ever encountered before. And in this moment, that teacher is standing outside the boat in the place Peter understands you're not supposed to go. A fisherman knows to walk outside the boat in the midst of a storm is a suicide mission. But perhaps with this Jesus present, with this I am in his midst, inviting him to become like himself, to do what he does, what once was impossible, reckless, foolish, might now be the place of ultimate encounter with the divine. Command me to come be with you on the water, he says. And Jesus affirms Peter's request with a simple invitation, come. And with that, Peter steps outside the boat. He finds himself walking on the water, making his way towards Jesus. In recent weeks, I've been reflecting on this story and the richness of this imagery of walking on water. Truthfully, I think many of us, when we consider our journey of faith or what it means to engage spirituality, we can connect with this moment of leaving the boat. Some of us were brought up in churches where faith was understood to be secure and certain, 
We were told we had solid ground underneath us or a protective boat we could ride in through the choppy waters. Others of us may have found that security in our families, our education, or some system that helped us make sense of the world, but eventually we found ourselves called out of the boat, compelled by something beyond the safety of our vessel, taking fearful steps onto what feels like it has no foundation, like it's as unstable as water. And this brings me to my third and final observation from the passage. The journey of faith often involves taking steps into uncertainty, but also sacred solidarity. The journey of faith often involves taking steps into uncertainty, but also sacred solidarity. What do I mean by that? I'm struck by the fragility we can feel in moments where we're called to step out, when it feels like we're no longer on solid ground, where that which we always assumed we needed to move our way forward has been stripped away. We move from certainty to ambiguity, from clarity to mystery, and it's destabilizing. If we look too closely at the forces coming against us or our own lack of capacity or understanding, we might find ourselves like Peter starting to sink but Peter doesn't drown. Something holds him up. He is connected to his rabbi, Jesus. He's experiencing solidarity with the sacred. Even when he starts to falter, when he loses trust in himself and his ability to take this journey, all he needs to do is cry out. And Jesus is present and ready to accompany him. When that man asked me pointedly, is this the hill you're willing to die on? I knew there was only one answer I could give because this journey of faith I was on was not ultimately defined by a persuasive theological argument or by my sense of this leader's authority in my life. I was now years into a journey of following a rabbi who had somehow seen something particular in this quirky young woman, this theater major with all of her gay friends and gay professors whom she loved and respected. And this rabbi had called me to be a disciple. Even in a faith context that was not affirming, I was years into wrestling with the clear sense that Jesus's radical way of inclusion meant fully embracing, affirming, and including our LGBTQ family members. I'd been moved by visions of Jesus embracing my queer friends before an altar and calling me to cultivate sacred space where those friends could find a safe home to receive Jesus's loving embrace. And when it became clear that my now deep connection might cause a rift with the leadership of my network, I found myself devoutly praying for guidance and wisdom. And so I told that leader the truth. I'm praying every day. If I'm in error, Jesus, show me, help me turn to where you're leading. But all I sense is Jesus calling me forward. And so if that means dying on a hill, then I guess that's what it means. Stepping out of that system of churches I was a part of and the Christian subculture that network was connected to was for me like stepping out of the boat of security, 
I was taking steps onto something that felt as slippery and unstable, as ungrounded as water. But what called me forward and what encouraged me through the myriad moments of uncertainty and fear in the weeks and years that followed has been sacred solidarity. First and foremost, it was the sense of solidarity with the divine that I have seen expressed through the person of Jesus and the spirit that is, he has pointed me towards. But this is not the only place sacred solidarity has shown up for me. I've seen it in the discovery of many other brothers and sisters from across the spectrum who've taken similar journeys, have felt similar calls, are moved by God in similar ways, demonstrating to me that what I feared might be a trip into isolation was actually an invitation into deeper sacred community. This community, of course, includes all of you. But the expression of sacred solidarity reaches beyond the boundaries of haven or any particular expression of Christian faith. It reminds me that I am in solidarity with a long line of ancestors, a great cloud of witnesses who since the time of Peter have taken courage from this same story and others like it and have made choices to get out of their boats. My walk on the water is in solidarity with all of them. Friends, as we enter this season of Lent, alongside Christian family members throughout history and many from traditions very different from our own, I hope we too can experience some of that sacred solidarity in this time and that it can be sustaining for us. May we, like Jesus, be nourished by a loving caregiver in our places of desperation and depletion. May we, when we see the limits of our own sufficiency, find the one who says, I am present with us. And may we have the courage to follow the sacred outside the boat. Because we may stumble at times, we may struggle to trust, we may start to sink. But as we continue to move forward, even in uncertainty to the places where sacred solidarity is calling us, the miraculous can also happen. We too might just walk on water. Amen. Amen. Hmm. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll go into our conversation time. Jesus, we acknowledge the places where we feel discouraged by what's happening in the world. Discouraged by the lack of justice. Discouraged by circumstances we can't control. Discouraged by... Uh, responses from people who are our brothers and sisters that we can't understand regarding a virus, regarding the truth, whatever those questions are. We feel discouraged. Sometimes we feel alone. Sometimes we feel hopeless. May we find you again in those places of depletion, 
when we're up against the edge of our own sufficiency. And may we receive your invitation to encounter you, not just coming to us on the waters, but inviting us to step out in new ways, even when it doesn't even make sense to us. May we encounter you in the places of mystery. May we encounter...